If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. As we begin our study of the book of Ephesians, this morning, um, for those of you who are not familiar with how we start books, maybe it's, it's been a while since you've been here, um, normally what I like to do for the first book is have a little bit more of a teaching session than preaching session, okay? So, so it's a little bit more educational, so you just understand the background, the history, authorship, those kind of things that kind of lays the foundation, and then we can preach off of that. Um, so this morning, it's going to be 75-25, about 75% teaching, 25% preaching. Um, so a little bit different than you're used to. So if you're taking notes, just know that the first part of this is just a lot of information that I think will be helpful as we work our way through the book of Ephesians over the next few months. All right, we are just going to be looking at two verses this morning. We're going to be looking at Paul's greeting here in verses 1 and 2. And we'll put this up on the screen, and we'll read this together as a church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when this letter was written, um, it was written in the Greek language, originally by Paul, and it would have been sent out. And at this time, Paul is in prison. Okay, so you're going to hear Paul refer to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. This is not a uh, title he gives himself. This is just a description of where he's at at the moment, right? He, he is literally a prisoner for Jesus Christ because he's chained to a wall, or in this case, he was probably under house arrest at this time while he was writing this particular letter. Uh, but either way, he's, he's imprisoned. He is a literal prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is stuck, right? But, but he wants to minister and care for the churches that he has planted as he's been doing, uh, going and traveling through his missionary journeys. And so the only way Paul can do that is through letters, right? So Paul has this prolific letter ministry. Much of the New Testament is Paul writing letters to churches, right? And so Paul is, is writing these out in Greek, and he's sending them out, sending a copy out to a church. And then once it gets to that church, they make copies of it, Right? And then they disseminate it out to other surrounding house churches, other cities, and it kind of moves out from that way. So we have copies of copies. Now, the original letter that Paul wrote is, is gone. We don't have that. But what we do have are hundreds of copies of the original. And, and so we take in, in scholarly kind of theological work, we, we try to look at all of those manuscripts that we have, kind of compare them. And it's amazing how accurate and the care that they took in copying these letters, right? They didn't have a, a photocopier, right? We, we sometimes were spoiled, right? We, we would want them to be 100% accurate and 100% perfect because in our mind, it's like, well, we take the letter, we take it to a copy machine, we hit copy 100 times, and then boom, all 100 are exactly the same as the first one. But remember that they didn't have that, right? So they're writing by hand. And they're writing this out each time over and over. Great, meticulous care is given to copying the letters. And scholars have examined very carefully all of the surviving copies of, of Ephesians that we have. And, and that said, manuscripts that survive, they agree 99% of the time with each other through this copying process in the ancient world. We do, however, sometimes find discrepancies in the copies. And so there's copies of this letter which don't have two crucial words. They don't have in Ephesus. In other words, you know, in the other copies, that they omit these words. Now, most surviving manuscripts have the words in Ephesus. And that's the reason why for centuries the church kept this particular designation 
and variant in the English version of the New Testament. There are only two or three significant copies that don't have the words in Ephesus. But here's the unfortunate problem. Those two or three are the very finest and most trustworthy of the surviving manuscripts that we have. And they don't have the words in Ephesus. And for this reason, the evidence is almost equally weighted for or against the inclusion of in Ephesus. So it's, it's possible that the, the designated destination was never part of the epistle. There are other factors that biblical commentators consider when they're weighing this decision. We know from Luke's record in Acts of the Apostles that during this third missionary journey of Paul, he stayed in Ephesus for two years. Now, for Paul, that's actually a really long time for him to stay in one place. A congregation developed there in which he obviously had a very important and very vital ministry. And normally, whenever Paul writes back to a specific church where he knows individuals personally, he gives personal greetings to them. He writes to his dear brothers and sister so-and-so, right? Who are still alive and in those congregations. And that kind of personal communication is glaringly absent in the letter to the Ephesians. Now, this does not necessarily prohibit the possibility that the original destination was the Ephesian congregation, but it provides added support to the idea that perhaps this letter was not originally destined specifically for the congregation at Ephesus. So here, here's how those couple of manuscripts would have read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The general opinion now is that the Ephesians epistle was most likely a circular letter originally, meaning that Paul would have wrote this general letter to go out to the churches that he was uh, apostle over, church planter over, had authority over, and then that letter would then be circulated around to other churches. Rather than delivering a specific message to a single con a congregation about a specific situation or issue, Instead, Paul is, is writing this letter that is meant to be sent out to all of the Asia Minor churches. I think this explains why Paul avoids specific persons with his usual greetings. Paul's responsibility was to, in this letter, he, he wanted to kind of give a summation of the revelation that was entrusted to him. Most scholars think this was later in Paul's life, toward the end of Paul's life. And so he, he's getting to that point, right, where he, he's just like, guys, I want you to understand the, the, the general idea of the gospel. I want you to understand the key truths of the gospel. And given Ephesus' strategic location, it would make sense that Paul would first send the letter to the church at Ephesus. And then, from there, it would spread out to other churches. See, Ephesus was kind of the gateway to Asia Minor. It was the, the major uh, road in which travel and commerce moved. And so it makes sense that Paul writes this original letter. He sends it to the church at Ephesus. And then the church at Ephesus makes those copies, sends them out to the churches in Ephesus. And then those letters begin to move on and on with the, the designation in Ephesus, added because of that original location, that original place that God, that, that Paul wanted that letter to go. Now, given that the majority of the manuscripts have Ephesus in the title, let me give you a little background about the city of Ephesus. Now, and I want to stop here. Let me, I tell you this stuff, guys, especially for you young people here, okay? There is nothing that a college professor loves to do more than nitpick these little things in the Bible. 
And, and when a, a, a student goes that just blindly goes, well, it's in the Bible, so it all, then they love to sit here and go, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about, how can you believe any of it? Right? I, I want you to understand how we get to where we get and why we can trust God's word. Okay? So that, that's why I'm telling you some of this stuff that you, you may be sitting out there going, Dale, well, this, is, this doesn't help me. But, but again, I promise, especially you young people, this is incredibly important. I want you to understand that, that the Bible wasn't literally handed down from heaven to a person. That, that's the way some churches inadvertently teach it, and it's unquestionable. I have, I have a dear friend that went into the military with that mindset, that God had wrote the Bible and handed it to a dude, and then the dude made copies. Man, his drill sergeant tore him up and made him feel stupid. And to this day, he still struggles with his faith. So again, I want you to understand, I want you to be educated in the process that God not only inspired his word, but he preserved his word. That, that's part of God's sovereign protection over his word. Okay? So, with this title and, and knowing that, again, this was probably at least the first city that the, the letter went to, I want to give you a little bit of background about Ephesus. We learn in Acts chapter 17 of the first missionary, and I'm going to summarize this because there's a lot of stuff to read, but I encourage you to go back and read the end of Acts 17 and Acts 18 for what I'm about to share you, but I'm going to give you a summary. We learn about the first missionaries to, to take the gospel to Ephesus, a man named Apollos, who was apparently a very gifted and eloquent speaker, the Bible tells us, and he took the message of Jesus to Asia, to the city of Ephesus specifically. And yet, even though he was a gifted and eloquent speaker, he only knew about the baptism of John. So, so that's what he went and preached. And, and he asked them and called them to convert the same way John did. In other words, he only knew about the baptism of repentance and not the baptism of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, John came to kind of pave the way and announce the Messiah was coming. And part of John's ministry was a baptism of repentance and then in hope looking forward to the Messiah that would be coming after John. Jesus even makes his way to John to get baptized by John, right? And that's, that's the point in which the Holy Spirit descends down like a dove upon Jesus, God's Son, and God the Father says, well done, right? He, th this is my Son. And so that's, this was part of John's ministry, preparing people for the coming Messiah. After Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, believers were then baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this marked the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of the gospel. The baptism of John was just one of repentance and preparation of the heart, but the baptism of Jesus was one of repentance and new life. Receiving the Holy Spirit from God the Father through God the Son. So there were people in Ephesus who had heard about Jesus. They had believed and had been baptized into John's baptism. And these, baptiz these believers were converted by either Apollos or potentially these guys could have been in Jerusalem and, and seen the early part of Jesus' ministry and then went back to Ephesus. But, but there, was a small, there was a core group. There was a small group of about 12 people. And then in chapter 18, we see Paul makes his way to the city of Ephesus. Now, Paul meets these disciples, and again, there's about 12 of them, the Bible says. And the Bible records that Paul begins to meet with them, and he asks them if they have been baptized into Jesus Christ. And they say no. They've only received the baptism of John. In other words, a baptism of repentance, of, of preparation. And Paul begins to explain the gospel to them, praying for them, baptizing them into the Holy Spirit and they received the Holy Spirit. From there, Paul does what Paul normally does. If you know anything about the New Testament, Paul had a certain modus operandi when it comes to going into a new city. Right? The, the, the Bible says that the gospel comes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Okay? So that's what Paul follows that model. Paul goes to the synagogue. He goes to the place to where people are studying the Old Testament, the book in Paul's mind that just points clearly to Jesus Christ. And he thinks, you know what, this is fertile ground to start with. You, with the Gentiles, we have to fight all this paganism and idolatry and all this other stuff. But here, at least they know 
that God is going to send a Messiah. So that's where Paul starts out first. He takes this group of disciples, they go to the synagogue daily, and they begin to preach the gospel. They explain how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. And this goes on for a while. And they give him a hearing. They, they, they listen to him. They hear him out. But, like normal, they begin to get agitated by Paul because of the message of Jesus Christ. You see, this message of grace does not go well with this message of law that they believe in their hearts and have relied on. Now this Paul is saying, there is this grace. That, that we are not made right because of what we do. We, may, we are made right because of what Jesus did. And so because of this, they kick him out of the synagogue. And again, Paul's typical fashion, he left the synagogue, he goes to the Gentiles, he finds a public place, and he begins preaching all day to the point the Bible says that, that everybody in Ephesus had at least heard the gospel. Ephesus at this time was a, a city, a major city, probably top five, about 250,000 people. And the Bible says that day and night, Paul was preaching the, the gospel to the Gentiles, to the men and women of Ephesus, to the point that everyone had at least heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel clearly. Now, during this time, the Lord worked some amazing miracles through Paul. Again, recommend you read Acts uh, to see more of that, Acts chapter 18. Um, and, and this helps the people of Ephesus see and believe what Paul is saying. The, these, these miraculous healings helped give credence to what Paul was saying, right? It, it served to help him plant this message deeply in the heart of the Ephesians. But right before Paul left Ephesus, he was going to be heading to Macedonia next, a riot broke out in the city. See, apparently the gospel started to take hold. And it started to take hold so well that it did something that is a big no-no in culture and society. It started affecting people's pocketbooks. So there was a certain silversmith whose job was to make these idols out of metal and wood and whatever, right? And all of a sudden, he's looking at his QuickBooks and he's like, oh, hey, sales are going down, right? Paul came to the city and now I'm not making as much money as I should make. This is, this, if this trajectory keeps going, I am in trouble, so he rallies the other silversmiths, the other tradesmen that make their living off of making these idols, and he, he gets them to come to this big amphitheater, seats 20, 25,000 people, right? And they, they pack it out. They are upset. They, they, they want something to be done about this Paul and this new Christianity thing, that, that this gospel that he is spreading. He claimed, and this is, this is how he got the people on board, he claimed an offense against Artemis, the goddess that the city worshipped. I'll talk a little bit more about that goddess that they worshipped and why that was so important to them in just a minute. But, but Paul, <laughs> you got to love Paul, right? I'm, you're reading through Acts chapter 18. You know what Paul's doing? Paul is just so excited because he's like, dude, 25,000 people in one place. Let me preach the gospel, right? I mean, he, he, he's got no fear. I mean, this guy just wants to jump in there and he's just like, captive audience, this is great. But the leaders and the officials say, hey, hey, this, this is not going to end well for you. So let us, let us handle this. They go in and they disperse the crowd. But they disperse the crowd by reaffirming the city's belief in Artemis the goddess. But in doing so, under the threat that maybe Rome would get mad that they were causing a riot and that they would all be arrested, they, they disband and it, it ends peacefully with nobody getting hurt. But, but the guy makes this interesting thing 
the, the reason, again, why, why it disperses is because he, he calls back to their old religion. He calls back to them being the protector of Artemis, the goddess. Right? These people for like a couple of hours are chanting about how great Artemis, the goddess, is. This is something deeply ingrained in who they are. Artemis worship was at the very core of Ephesian culture. The Artemis of Ephesus was not simply the Greek goddess Artemis. Some of you who have studied mythology, and specifically Greek mythology, you may be like, oh, Artemis, I, I know who that is. Artemis, the Greek goddess known as the virgin archer huntress and a deity associated with nature, animals, and fertility, she was one of the 12 Olympians and the, the twin sister of Apollo. To the Romans, Artemis was known as Diana. But Artemis of Ephesia was different. It was the goddess Artemis Ephesia that was at the center of the controversy in Acts 19. The deity was a fusion of Greek Artemis and an Asian mother goddess from Ephesus. So in other words, before the, the Greeks came and brought their view of Artemis, there was another more ancient female goddess that this area worshipped. This, this was the, the mother of all gods, okay? They, they, reverent, they, they had so much reverence for her. And so, so when the Greeks came, they, they just kind of incorporated her, the, the, the whole Artemis thing, into their pre-existing goddess that they were worshipping. Surviving statues of this Artemis show her to be a multi-breasted mother goddess clothed in ornament, ornate garments and wearing a large headdress. I would show you a picture, but for obvious reasons, I'm not going to. Artemis of Ephesia was associated with fertility, right? Not virginity, but fertility. Having exaggerated sexual features of other Near Eastern fertility goddesses. Now, to this god, they built the Artemision of Ephesus. Again, this was a city, 200,000, 250,000 people, and at the epicenter was, was this temple that they had built. This was the main place in which this goddess was worshipped. She was worshipped in other places, but this was the primary place where she was worshipped. Her temple at Ephesus, it's called the Artemision, was included among the seven wonders of the ancient world. Construction on the temple began in the mid-16th century B.C., and over a century later, it was the largest building of its time in Rome, Greece, or all of Asia. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, roughly four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Had 127 columns that measured 60 feet high in length. But this didn't just serve as the place of worship. This was also the most, financial, most important financial institution in Asia. It was a secure place for depositors to leave money because of the widespread respect for Artemis of Ephesia and the prestige of her temple. You ever wonder why banks have the architecture that they do? The columns in front of them? It goes way back, doesn't it? The city of Ephesus was not only the site of the Artemision, but it also held the title of temple keeper of Artemis. This is what the city was called. The city official who attempted to quell the riots in Acts 19 used this term saying that the city of the Ephesians was the temple keeper of the great Artemis. This is what began to calm the crowd down. He also claimed that the Ephesians were the guardians of that which fell from the sky in Acts 19.35. Literally, the term there is fallen from Zeus and was originally used to denote meteorites viewed as heaven-sent cult objects. And it may imply that the meteorite was somehow incorporated into her cult statue, or some historians have argued that the statue itself was believed to have fallen from heaven. 
So, this is, this is a little background of the city in which this letter was at least first sent among the churches to be then circulated around. This was a city steeped in idolatry, steeped in paganism. This was not a neutral city. But this was also a city where morality was a good thing. So, so in worshiping their gods, being a good moral person was a part of that. And so into this context, Paul writes a letter to the churches that are in Ephesus, and then again, we believe spread throughout Asia Minor. And Paul will often give us clues in his opening greeting to the direction or point of the overall letter. And I want to close this morning by breaking down this greeting. Maybe I shouldn't use that word close. In verse 1, Paul says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. When Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's, he's claiming to be an appointed messenger of God. So, someone that, that is speaking on God's behalf. This, this means that Paul not only belongs to Jesus Christ, but also that Paul represents him so definitely that Paul's message is Christ's own message. When, when, Paul, when Paul speaks under the inspiration of God's Spirit, it, it's like or it's as if Christ is speaking himself. So when he speaks grace and peace to the Ephesians, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are bestowing their very own blessing on these people. And we are now speaking of the apostleship in the strictest sense. For the, the word can be employed in two different ways. It, it can sometimes in the Bible, it denotes preachers of the gospel to, to whatever class they might belong. But here, Paul is, is, is using it as, as, a, as a proof of authority to these churches in Asia that he is sending it out to. That, that, that this is a reference to being the, the highest rank, if you will, in the church. So that Paul is equal to Peter and the other twelve. He then goes on and says, An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now Paul can defend his right to speak since his apostleship is God's will. There, there was a time when Paul threatened individuals who confessed Jesus as their Lord, right? This is when Paul was Saul before meeting Jesus. He, he was hanging on to the cloaks of the people that were killing other Christians. What gave him the right to speak for God? You might ask. Based on, on his track record, he doesn't have any. Based on his past, if, if that's what you're judging by, then, then he has no right to speak for God. But Paul, on the other hand, is not an apostle because of his track record. He's an apostle because of Christ's atonement. That's what makes him an apostle. He had been corrected by Jesus. He had been claimed by Jesus. He had been commissioned by Jesus. And even though Paul admitted that he was the Worst of sinners, he was nevertheless able to speak for God since it was God's will for him to do so. Right? Paul, Paul is saying here, this is not my will. This is God's will. Man, what a, what a reassuring message that is for us as well, though, right? When, when those who are aware of our former lives challenge our authority to speak for God, Right? You're, you're out there and you're sharing the gospel to somebody that you grew up with or somebody in your family, and they're like, yeah, but I know you. I know what you did in high school. I know what you did during college years. We're not saved because of our track record. We're not saved because of what we did. We're saved because of what Jesus did for us. 
So we, like Paul, can share the gospel boldly. When we respond as the Apostle Paul did, by saying, if, if my speaking were based on my own doing, then I would have no right to speak. But like Paul, if you are a believer today, God convicted you. God claimed you. And then God commissioned you to share the good news of the gospel. I have a right to speak because God wants me to. Not, not because there's anything good in of myself, but because of what God has done for me. The will of God was not just Paul's defense of his right to speak, but it was also his offense. I have a right to speak, and you have a responsibility to listen. Paul could tell his audience since his apostleship was God's will. Paul is preparing to address the Ephesians with some pretty harsh words. Some of the things that he's going to say in this letter to all of these churches are going to be a little hard to hear. And he understands how simple it would be for people to dismiss him because of his past and therefore dismiss the message and say, well, we don't have to follow that. How many times do people do that nowadays? Right? They hit that point in the Bible in which they go, I don't like what that says. Let me find some reason to discredit it. Then I won't have to believe it. That's why it's important for us as believers that if we're going to believe the Bible, we're going to believe the whole Bible. Even the parts that we don't understand, even the parts that make us uncomfortable, even the parts that aren't culturally acceptable, we've got to believe it all. If, however, his words are the will of God, then everyone must pay attention to what he says. Paul has authority since his calling is God's will. His defense, his offense, and eventually his confidence are all based in God's will. The will of God not only gives Paul authority, but it also instills in him a great expectation. God has a plan for me. That, that is the essence of his power. When a person believes that he has been called from darkness to light by a force greater than any challenge this world can offer, he sees opportunity where others see resistance, right? That, that's why when Paul sees this riotous group of 20 or 25,000 people in this auditorium, he's going, hey, hey, tap me in, coach. Let me go in there and preach the gospel. Everybody else is going, they're going to rip you apart. But Paul's like, no, God's got a plan for me. He's got a plan for my life. And so where, where you see resistance, I see an opportunity. I see a bunch of people gathered together, and hey, maybe one person out of 20,000 will hear the gospel and believe. From where does his confidence come that God's will and word will enable him to overcome such overwhelming challenges? The apostle's starting point is essential. Paul himself is an apostle because of the will of God. What is before his own eyes is how distant and opposed to the gospel was his own heart when Christ called him. You couldn't, you couldn't be any farther than Paul when he was Saul. He, he, just, he wasn't idle and not caring he was actively persecuting. The most excellent witness to Paul of the incredible power of the gospel and its claim on his soul when he was an enemy, when he was Christ's enemy, God called him. The greatest evidence to us of the power of God's word and will to overcome overwhelming opposition is the work of God in our own life. Guys, this, this is why it's important for us to understand the depravity of our hearts. Because if you're sitting here thinking this morning, man, God kind of got a good deal with me. I'm pretty good. 
I mean, like compared to some of these other people, you know, in my small group, like, woo, he's got a lot of work to do with them. I'm okay. I, I man, I'm pretty good 99% of the time. Then, then you will have a hard time believing that God can save people who are, whose lives are mired with sin. Because you failed to stare down the pride in your own heart that's blinding you from seeing how sinful you are. But man, once God opens your eyes to that, then all of a sudden you believe in the power of the gospel to change anybody. You, you begin loving people and sharing the gospel to people that, that other people have given up on. Because you know the amazing work that God has done in your own heart. And that then empowers you to say, by the will of God, he has, he has a plan for me. He saved, while I was an enemy, he saved me. It's, it's that kind of power that we need to live a victorious Christian life the way Paul did. Even though he's, he's, he's imprisoned. But he still has hope. This, this is why sharing our testimony to one another can, can be so encouraging. Because we, we hear, wow, God, he overcame so much to save you. Maybe he can save my spouse. Maybe he can save my kids. Maybe he can save that coworker that drives me crazy. Verse 2, he says, Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the opening salutation, Paul gives the message that he wants to impart in the rest of the book. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's thesis statement for the book of Ephesians. This one sentence summarizes everything he's going to say. These people are living in a city filled with paganism. Their lives are threatened by it. And yet the apostle is offering grace amidst sin and peace, amidst the storms of conscience and likely persecution. Like, guys, if, if they're doing this to Paul after being there for just two years, what's going to happen to the Christian church as it continues to grow? And they have such, such devotion to this, this female goddess, and, and now all of a sudden Christianity is beginning to grow And threatening not only the livelihood, but, but the overall attendance. What, what's going to happen to them? I'll tell you what's going to happen to them. They're going to get persecuted. Paul says grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't want them to do what they did with Artemis, the Greek goddess. Right? They, they start with Artemis of Ephesia, this, this very ancient mother goddess. The Greeks come in, and what do they do? They just incorporate the, the Greek aspects into their worship, and they just keep, keep right on going. So, so what are we doing? We're staying true. In their minds, we're staying true to our goddess, but we're, we're doing these things to appease these people. And Paul doesn't want them to do the same thing with Christianity. He said, well, how, how in the world, how in the world could they do this with Christianity? I'll tell you. When you hear the gospel story, is there a, a mother of a God who's a virgin? Why, yes, there is. I said, we'll start making Virgin Mary statues. 
And we'll start worshiping that. We'll say we're Christians, but we'll have our Virgin Mary statue so we can keep worshiping our old gods under the new system. To this day, Catholics make pilgrimages to Ephesus to see Mary's house in Ephesus that she never lived in. At the base of the mountain where they worship Artemis. It's very easy, guys, to, 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 to take Christianity and just syncretize it with what we already believe. And again, to this day, to this day, it's a pilgrimage that many, not, not only Catholics, but also Muslims make to this house that they claim is Mary's house. And Paul doesn't want them to do that. Right? You, you jump over to Revelations, last time we see Ephesus, and, and, and generally a good report for Ephesus. Till the end, you, you stopped. You, you failed in your first love. But if the first love is the gospel, then what they're failing in is something else, something they've added to it, something they've changed, something they've tweaked. We're not given the specifics, but it's some modification to the gospel. And Paul does not want that to happen. So Paul offers this grace. And Paul can offer this because he knows the source of the grace. That the grace comes from our Father and Jesus. God is not limited to human efforts. Then he goes on and says, not only grace, but and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's greeting to the Ephesians echoes the progress of his understanding of the overpowering grace throughout his own life by the persons of the Trinity. When Paul, as Saul, was God's enemy, the Father sent the Son to save him. Through no effort of Paul's part, in fact, in the face of Paul's contrary efforts, Jesus blinded Paul and saved him. Paul then confesses Jesus to be not only the Messiah, but his Messiah. The grace visible in Paul's life is the awareness of a God who acts on behalf of his people without any merit of their own. And he proclaims the same grace to the Ephesians. Not simply as their hope, but as their peace. Because such grace means that God is no longer counting their sins against them. They're no longer enemies of God. They can live at peace with God because of His grace. And that, that's why Paul is just going to hammer over and over and over in this, in this book the importance of understanding God's grace in our lives. God melts the hardened human heart and, and all the powers of human evil. Because Paul knows this grace, he knows peace. And he shares both. Knowing that when grace is understood as the compassionate and prevailing power of God on behalf of his people, then peace comes. It's, it's the natural result of understanding this grace. Peace is what enabled Paul to keep going when he was imprisoned. Even while he's, he's writing this letter, God's peace enabled him to persevere when he suffered. Paul was able to persevere when he was beaten and stoned and run out of towns. Even though Paul was in prison as he wrote to the Ephesians, he, he, rem, he remained confident of God's love and God's purposes for him because he was at peace. Paul's ministry continued. 
Through his life, we understand that peace is the power for ministry as well as the fruit of grace. Perhaps this is the reason Paul begins this letter with a promise of peace. Since again, what he will say in the remainder of the letter about the church's ministry will be somewhat challenging. We live in a time when we need to hear this message more than ever. Guys, the world is divided on so many issues. Everywhere you turn, there is some kind of division. This this idea of oppressed and oppressor is just infiltrated everything. And sadly, sadly, the church is mimicking the culture and just dividing over so many second and third level issues. Taking those second and third level issues and elevating them to a first level issue and, and making them a litmus test of orthodoxy. We're just like the world. The problems in our world seem sometimes too great to overcome. The culture has become more and more sexualized. Things are, were always around it, but, but hidden, and now they're openly celebrated by our culture. With the problems so great and the culture so wicked, the church so weak, what basis is there to expect that any real change is possible? Paul reveals the summary of the answer that he will elaborate on later in these chapters. Paul is saying what happened to him can still happen today in our world. God overcame Paul's anger. He overcame his his murderous tendencies. He, He overcame his rage against Jesus and his followers. Paul is saying if God can do that, We can have peace in knowing that God can overcome anything in culture that stands in His way. Thankfully, God's work is not dependent on human strength. God's message of grace will yield its fruit of peace in God's people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God, our weakness is not the end of the story. Because God is at work, we can have peace this morning that that empowers us to continue sharing the good news. The peace that, that grace provides is the believer's hidden source of power to persevere in this life without living in this grace daily. We will not experience this peace daily. Again, peace is the fruit of grace. And as we are enraptured by His grace, we will be bearing the fruit of peace. But but when we stop taking the grace of God and start thinking, well, I need to do a few things. I need to get involved here. I need to start, you know, earning my keep. You know the first thing that's going to go? Your peace. I'm not a a prophet, but I'll tell you what's going to happen to you because I've been there. You'll burn yourself out trying to do the work of God in your own power. And this will lead to bitterness. It It will lead to you forcing yourself on others. Instead of people seeing the peace that you have and being drawn to that peace because of the grace that you are experiencing. See, when people see everyone worried and scared and running for the hills, and yet here's this person who's calm, peaceful, that's different. But when they see people who are working hard, trying to do it themselves, trying to... They don't have any peace. They're just as stressed out. And so they're, they're trying to do what Scripture tells them to do, right? We, we should be discipling and, and sharing with other people. And so they're doing it in my own effort. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. 
Nobody wants to be around you. Because they don't see the grace that you talk about in your own life. And they definitely don't see the peace. But as Paul is going to unpack for us, week after week after week over the next few months, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is what will empower you. It it will preserve you. And the fruit of it is peace. When the world looks like it's falling apart, you will have peace. This morning, it's my hope and prayer that you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that he's called you and commissioned you. But that starts first by him convicting you of your sin. And you realizing your need for a savior. And I pray this morning that, that this would be the morning. that you would feel the weight of your sin, not because I want to be mean or vindictive, but because that's the first step in receiving the grace that he's offering and being able to live in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son to die on a cross to bear the sin and the punishment of your people. Father, this morning I I pray if, if there is anyone here that doesn't know you that this morning your Holy Spirit would Convict them of their sin and their need for you. And that you would call them this morning, God, but you would commission them this morning. And Father, for those of us who are here and we have followed you, but but we have put down your grace and, and started picking up our own works. God, I pray you would convict us of that. And that we would be reminded of our need for your grace every day of our life so that we might experience the peace of God. Not just the grace of God, but the peace of God. Father, I pray that you would use us, Lord, to share the good news of the gospel. Even to to people that we, we might even struggle to think they can be saved, God. But Lord, you would remind us that we were once enemies too. And you saved us. And because of that, the power of the gospel can change anything. And anyone. I see things in Jesus' name. Amen.